according to St. Mark. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go and sell what you have and give the money to the poor, and you will have great treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. And when he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. And then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but for God all things are possible. And Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age houses siblings mothers children fields with persecutions and the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, I've been thinking about it, and I fear that I owe you an apology. If not an apology, at least an explanation. I mean, you'd think after 30 years of preaching that I would have figured this out by now, but there you go. I mean, I try. I really do. I, mean, I, I don't want this kind of stuff to happen, but I'm weak. I mean, I should be better, but alas, I'm, I'm an imperfect man. And you all bear the consequences of my inadequacies and it pains me to say it but you could probably go to another church tune in on another facebook live stream 
And you could probably find a minister without my failings. But here at DBCC, you're stuck with a pastor who, try as he might, has been unable to protect you from Jesus. Because, I mean, Jesus insists on saying things that I have just been unable to figure out how to get him to unsay. I mean, if I'm not here to make the gospel a little bit more palatable for everyday people, if I can't help Jesus say things in a softer, more user-friendly way, then really, what good am I? I mean, a really skilled preacher could make Jesus say something different from, go sell what you have and give the money to the poor. I mean, a really practiced preacher could sand off the sharp edges from a passage like our gospel for this morning. You know, something like, you know, we, we all know that Jesus didn't actually mean for the man to sell everything and give the money to the poor. I mean, he meant for the man to sort of tackle the one thing that was getting in the way of his personal relationship with God, right? But it didn't have to be money. It could have been, what, too many bratwursts. So the whole camel through the eye of a needle thing was meant only for him. So you may safely disregard Jesus' exhortation about selling all you have. It doesn't apply to you. I mean, a, a deaf preacher could make this passage dance in ways that I just can't seem to manage. Something like, well, the problem that Jesus is addressing is that the man is too proud, right? He only thinks he's kept all the commandments since his youth. It's his arrogance that's keeping him from God. This whole money thing is just a, a sort of a tactic that Jesus uses, a kind of rhetorical punch in the nose to wake this guy up from his hubris. <clears throat> but see, I I'm not smart enough to get Jesus to say the kinds of things that would make this passage easier to hear. So, I apologize in advance. And I ask for your forgiveness. I mean, you deserve better. In a decade's worth of graduate school and seminary training, and all I can manage to come up with is that Jesus pretty much meant what he said. But even though I'm not that good at this whole preaching stuff, as we've established already, I guess I probably ought to take a shot at it anyway. So, our passage this morning in the Gospel of Mark opens with what appears to be some rather kind of humdrum setting. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him. I mean, you see what I mean about that, right? It's not anything particularly earth-shattering here. So Jesus is, I mean, he's on a journey, so what? But, 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 but saying that Jesus is on a journey doesn't quite get to the important part of what's actually happening in this passage. In Greek, the, the, the reading would be something more like, as Jesus was heading out on the way. Now, given that translation... What's the obvious question that a studious reader would probably be inclined to ask? Right, uh, on the way to where? Well, if, if you've been following Mark's narrative for the past several Sundays, Jesus has recently made a prediction about 
his coming execution at the hands of the Romans, which happens back a couple chapters in the 8th chapter of Mark, as Jesus and his disciples were on the way. And then Jesus and the boys go up on a high mountain where Jesus is transfigured, right? Afterward, in the ninth chapter, Jesus does some more walking and teaching, and he finally asks his disciples again, what are you arguing about on the way? And then we get to today's passage, which begins once again with the phrase, telling us that Jesus is, is on the way, but, but on the way to where? Well, we've read to the end of the book. We know how the story ends, so we know that he's on his way to Jerusalem. Now, in Mark's gospel, Jesus hasn't been to Jerusalem before, but he's headed there now. And you might say, okay, well, that's fine, but what, I mean, what happens in Jerusalem? Well, the authorities grab him, try him, whip him, and ultimately they crucify him. And all the stuff that he predicted on the way would happen is going to get ready to happen soon. So, so perhaps the question that the opening of our passage raises isn't on the way to where, but on the way to what? And the answer to that, of course, is on the way to a confrontation with the system of domination that ruled the lives of those who lived in Palestine, the Romans, and the temple system that collaborated with the Romans. And Mark, he ties this fatal travelogue together with that short phrase, on the way. So what happens in these passages is always set against the backdrop of where he's going and what he's headed into. So when Mark begins this story of the rich man asking what he must do to inherit eternal life with the phrase on the way, we, we, we know that he's setting this whole drama of the rich man's desire for inherited eternal life against the backdrop of Jesus' soon-to-be-forfeited earthly life. A life, by the way, forfeited not so much by Jesus himself, but by the politicians who felt threatened by him. Now, seen from this vantage point, the rich man's decision not to do as Jesus says and sell everything he has in pursuit of the ultimate good, it stands in stark contrast to the picture of Jesus, who is on the way to having everything stolen from him, his dignity, his friends, and ultimately his life. Now, in the humanities, that's what we would call irony. Hearing that he must sell everything and give the money to the poor apparently strikes the rich man as an unreasonable thing for Jesus to ask, and so he walks away. I mean, he's sad, but he leaves. And in our pastoral haste to reassure that everyone knows that Jesus couldn't possibly mean that the rich man had to sell everything and give the money to the poor, or, or, or at least that if he did mean that, he certainly didn't mean that everybody has to sell everything, because that would be ridiculous. In our haste to get Jesus to say what feels easiest to us, we preachers too often fail to take seriously the possibility that Jesus actually meant what he said. <laughs> Literally. See... <laughs> As a sign, as a sign, uh, sort of side note to this, 
it's clear that some people want to talk about taking the Bible literally as the only way to read the Bible until it comes time to do something as difficult as selling everything that you own and giving it to the poor. It would seem that in cases where reading the Bible literally might literally cost people something, it's perfectly acceptable to read the Bible figuratively. And, and, and in, a t in an attempt to sort of drive the point further home, Jesus offers this well-known adage. Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the disciples hear Jesus make this last claim about the difficulty of the wealthy entering the kingdom of God, and they're kind of thrown for a loop by it. I mean, they start sort of mumbling to each other, and they say, well, if, um, who can be saved then? Now, I mean, doesn't that strike you as kind of an odd thing for a bunch of working class fishermen and garden variety peasants to be worried about? I mean, more than likely, none of them have two nickels to rub together, which means that they are definitely not the rich folks Jesus is talking about. So, I mean, why are they concerned, right? Well, the conventional wisdom of Jesus' day was that wealth was a sign of God's favor. In short, the more you had, the more God was pleased with you. So, if rich people, that is to say the blessed class, would find it exceedingly difficult to enter the kingdom of God. The question was obvious. I mean, if they can't get in, who else is going to be able to? They're the ones that have been blessed by God, right? I mean, you can see how they come to this conclusion. If not rich people who bear the mark of God's blessing, who? Now, I think the confusion we feel about the disciples' response stems from a traditional belief that in speaking of the kingdom of God, Jesus is somehow speaking only sort of of heaven. And if that's the interpretive frame for this passage, that is, rich people can't get into heaven, well, then it's understandable how problematic this passage is, right? But when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's not using it as a another name for the sweet by and by for Jesus eternal life doesn't just begin after you die it starts right now oh when Jesus breaks out the kingdom of God he's mixing politics and religion just by using those words talking about a new world that's arranged as though God were in charge and not the kinds of people who normally find themselves in the seat of power which is to say the kinds of people who will very soon put Jesus to death. So, so when Jesus talks about rich people and camels and eye of needle, he's not talking about who's eligible for a smart new McMansion with an in-crown pool in the hereafter. He's talking about the kind of world that God imagines in which our personal piety always sort of takes a back seat to how we treat the poor and the powerless. He's He's talking about a new reign in which the world that everybody takes for granted is always favoring the haves will be turned on its head, upside down. And this new world, it's important to God not how many gold stars you can stick on your Ten Commandments chart or how much wealth or power that you've managed to accumulate, but rather how 
much you're willing to give away so that the have-nots can finally have some. Or, as Jesus puts it in the last verse of our passage this morning, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. In other words, Jesus once again takes the opportunity to paint a picture of a world where things the way they are right now is not the way things will ultimately be when God reclaims creation. At present, it's, it's, it's just assumed that the rich and the powerful are the people upon whom God smiles. But in the reign of God, the rich and the powerful sacrifice what they have to make sure that everyone has enough. As it stands now in this world, the people who write the rules get to tell women whether or not they've been assaulted. They get to tell black people whether or not they should have been shot. They get to tell immigrants seeking asylum whether or not the threats of death and violence from which they're escaping are actually, you know, real. They get to tell LGBTQ people whether or not they can keep their jobs, their homes, and their dignity. And they get to tell people with pre-existing conditions whether or not they can buy health insurance. You see, the world in which we live is set up to give every advantage to those who already have wealth and power. But they get to decide, at least if the Pandora Papers are any indication, whether or not they even pay taxes or just how much they're willing to let go of. But Jesus announces a new world where all of what we've taken for granted is turned upside down. The last will be first and the first will be last. The poor will have enough. The disenfranchised will have the power to participate in the community. The oppressed will be set free. Those who've been beaten down will be lifted up. Those who've been forgotten will be remembered. Those who've lived on the outside can now occupy the center. On the way to his execution, Jesus runs into a man satisfied with the way the world is and with his place in it. But Jesus tells him that world is coming to an end and that the rich man needs to prepare himself for a new world in which the rules of the current world that privilege wealth and power no longer apply. So the rich man can't wrap his head around this kingdom of God that Jesus proclaims, and he's shocked, and he goes away grieving because that kind of world doesn't make any sense to him. But you see, Jesus' words aren't meant to grieve the man. His, his, his words aren't intended to set up barriers to entry into the kingdom of God. Jesus is just trying to help the man adjust to a world where the rules no longer favor people like him. See, the grace in this story, as Jesus explains, is that for mortals, you're right, it's impossible. We can't make all the adjustments necessary on our own. But not for God. For God, all things are possible. C.S. Lewis once said, For God, all things are possible, even fitting a camel through the eye of a needle. Of course, it's pretty hard on the camel. But what Jesus does here is not only to ask the young man to give up his dependence on his stuff, 
but to turn around and give that money away to the poor. That is, to reorient his life in a way that reveals his dependence on everyone else. I mean, do you see, in the young man's search to inherit eternal life, Jesus shows him that he needs the poor just as much as they need him. So when the young man walks away dejected, it's not only because he can't bear to part with his stuff. Part of what drives him away is the thought of letting go of a system in which he has few needs in favor of a system in which the powerless are on equal footing, a system in which the rich looking to inherit eternal life need the poor as much as the poor looking for an equitable community where everyone has enough need the rich. But it's, I mean, it's so hard, Jesus. I like my life the way it is. I mean, isn't there an easier way? In Dostoevsky's book, The Brothers Karamazov, Father Zosima comments at one point, love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared with love in dreams. <laughs> Which is to say, I suppose, it's a lot easier to talk about this passage than to actually have to figure out how to live it. But then again, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised by this kind of talk from the man who eventually gave away everything he had so that all of us, the rich and the poor, the young and the old, the immigrant and the citizen, the folks at the front of the line and the folks at the back of the line could live together in a community where everyone has precisely what they need not only to survive, but to thrive and flourish. See, according to this passage, if we're seeking eternal life not only do we need less stuff, we need more of each other. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.